But okay. Um, so first reader, whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and read Exodus chapter nine. Okay. Fifth plague, the pestilence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go to serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and persist in holding them, the hand of the Lord will strike your livestock in the field, your horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks with a very severe pestilence. But the Lord will distinguish between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that nothing belonging to the Israelites will die. And the Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And on the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of Egypt died, but no, not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. But although Pharaoh found upon inquiry that not even so much as one livestock of the Israelites had died, he remained obstinate and would not let the people go. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Each of you take handfuls of soot from a clen, and in the presence of Pharaoh let Moses scatter it toward the sky, and turn into fine into fine dust over the whole it will turn into fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and cause festering boils on the human being and beast alike throughout the land of Egypt. So they took the soot from the clen and appeared before Pharaoh. When Moses scattered it towards the sky, it caused festering boils on human beings and beasts alike. Because of the boils, the magicians could not stand in Moses' presence, for there were boils on the magicians as well as the rest of the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart, uh, uh, yeah, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, early tomorrow morning, presence, uh, present yourself to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go to serve me. From this time I will unleash all my blows upon you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is not one like me anywhere else on earth. For by now I should have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with such pestilence that you would have vanished from earth. But this is why I have let you survive, to show you my power and to make my name resound throughout the earth. Will you continue to exalt yourself over my people and not let them go? At this time tomorrow, therefore, I am going to rain down such, severe, uh, such fierce hail as there has never been Egypt, from the day it was founded up to the present. Therefore, order your livestock and whatever else you have open in the open fields to be brought to a place of safety. Whatever human being or animal is not found in the fields and is not brought to shelter will die when the hail comes down upon them. Those of Pharaoh's servants who feared the word of the Lord hurried their servants and livestock off to shelter. But those who did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left the servants and their livestock in the fields. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that the hail might fall upon the entire land of Egypt, on human being and beast alike, and all the vegetation of the fields of the land. 
So Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent forth peals of thunder and hail. Lightning flashed towards the earth, and the Lord rained down hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and lightning flashing here and there through the hail, and the hail was so fierce that nothing like it had been seen in Egypt since it became a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the fields, human being and beast alike. It struck down all the vegetation in the fields and splintered every tree in the fields. Only the land of Gosen, where the Israelites were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is just, is the just one, and I and my people are the ones at fault. Pray to the Lord, enough of the thunder and hail. I will let you go. You need stay no longer. Moses replied to him, As soon as I leave the city, I will extend my hand to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that the Lord may know that the earth belongs to the Lord. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and barley were ruined because the barley was in, in ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the split or spelt were not ruined, for they grow later. When Moses had left Pharaoh and, uh, and gone out of the city, he extended his hands to the Lord. The thunder and hail ceased. The rain no longer poured down upon the earth. But Pharaoh, seeing that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, sinned again and became obstinate, both he and his servants. And in the hardness of heart, Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have made him and his servants obstinate, in order that I may perform these signs in mine among them, and that you may recount to your son and grandson how I made a fool of Egypt, Egyptians and what signs I did among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and told him, Thus says the Lord, the good of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to submit to me? Let my people go to serve me, for if you refuse to let my people go, Tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They will cover the surface in the end, so that the earth itself will not be visible. They will eat up the remnant you, sa you saved unmanaged from the hill, as well as all the trees that are growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and the houses of your servants and all of all the Egyptians. Some something your parents and your grandparents have not seen from the day they appeared on this, this soil until today. With what, with that, he turned and left Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long will you be a snare for us? Let the people go to serve the Lord, their God. Do you not, do you not yet realize that Egypt is being destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, who said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But who exactly will go? Moses answered, With our young and old, we must go. With our sons and daughters, with their flocks and herds, we must go. It is a pilgrimage. Feast of the Lord. The Lord help you. Pharaoh replied, If I let your little ones go with you. 
Clearly you have some evil in mind. By no means just you men go and serve the Lord. After all, that is what you have been asking for. With that, they were driven from Pharaoh's presence. The Lord then said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, for the locusts, that they may come upon it and eat up all the land's vegetation. Whatever the hill has left, the Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord drove an east wind over the land all that day and all night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the whole Egypt, land of Egypt and settled down over its, all its territory. Never before had there been such a fierce swarm of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered the surface of the whole land, and so that it became black. They ate up all the vegetation in the land and the fruit of the trees. The hill had spread. Nothing green was left on any tree or plant in the fields throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh hurriedly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. But now do, forgi do forgive me my sin only this once, and pray to the Lord your God. Only take this death from me. When Moses left Pharaoh, he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord caused the wind to shift to a very strong west wind, which took up the locusts and hurled them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust remained within the whole territory of Egypt. Yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that over the land of Egypt there may be such darkness that one, that one can feel it. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was dense darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. People could not see one another, nor could they get up where they were, for there for three days. But all the Israelites had light where they lived. Pharaoh then summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only your flocks and herds will be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses replied, You also must give us sacrifices and burnt offerings to make to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not an animal must be left behind, for some of them will be selected for service to the Lord our God. But we will not know which one, which ones we are to serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was unwilling to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Leave me and see to it that you do not see my face again. For the day you see my face, you will die, Moses replied. You are right. They will never see your face again. Awesome. Thank you both for reading. Uh, so just a recap. So we're going over the 10 plagues, right? We've officially reached plague nine. Okay. And each plague, if you notice, gets slightly more worse. Is that correct, grammar? Anyways. Um, so the first one is the, the, is the blood of the, the Nile turning into blood, right? Again, this symbolizes Hapi, the god of the Nile. And so, again, uh, running water, the Nile River was the source of life. You know, people would go, be sustained by the water that was there. So this is something that's very important. So the next one was the frogs. And you have Hecate, which is the frog goddess of fertility. And again, the Egyptians were practicing many um, immoral 
lustful actions. And so this is another attack to one of the Egyptian gods. And then you have the gnats and the flies. And so ultimately, this is just a pestering of the Egyptians, you know, this discomfort. But again, it is attacking two Egyptian gods, Kefre and Utachit. Um, I think that's how you say that. In any case, we just read of the next four. Um, and that is the fifth plague, the death of the livestock, which is Apis, which is the bull god, or Hathor, the cow goddess, and many other gods that represent livestock. So Egyptian, the Egyptians were very big on this. And so this is a, a full-blown attack on all of it. And I recall what Moses had said, we cannot sacrifice in the land because what we sacrifice will be um, detestable to the Egyptians, essentially referring to these gods that they had which were this bull god and uh, the cow goddess. And so you see this, this want to sacrifice to the Lord. And essentially what God is teaching them is that the divinity is not found in these animals, but it's rather found in me. And so, you know, a uh, uh, central theme in the Old Testament is like, if you're living a good life, you're, if you're prospering, it's because you're a good person, you deserve it. And so the boils and the sores, it's another Egyptian god, Sekhemet which is the goddess of healing. And so this is just entirely uncomfortable. Think back to the story of Job. You know, he was stricken with sores, covering his whole body. It was, it was a terrible thing. Um, and so that, that's another thing. The next one was the hail, the killing of the crops. This was the gods Nut, Shu, and Tefnut, which would be the goddess of the sky, the god of the air, and then the goddess of rain. But essentially, he's destroying the crops, which is, you know, the what they need to eat, right? And so what God is also showing at the same time is that, you know, you who worshipped these different gods, everything that you needed, water, food, livestock, I shall destroy because the everything that you need essentially comes from me. And then you have the locust, which again, um, this is uh, is sort of tied to the crops when you have Senehem, which is the god of the crops. And so the crops all die essentially. Um, and then lastly, the three days of darkness. God is proving here that even the sun itself, Am Amun-Ra, which is the sun god, it is not divine. No matter how important light is, this is not God. I am God. I'm far superior to all these things that I've just told you about, to water, to food, to crops, to livestock, all of it, to health health, well-being, the sun itself, I'm superior to all of it. And the last plague is the plague of death. And that shows very clearly that God is superior to all life and even death. And this is, of course, a shadow of what's to come and Christ, how he conquers death on the cross. Um, and so that's why um, you have Christ as this new Moses figure, uh, where he totally conquers death and not just in this fashion where the, the Israelites selectively are, are saved. Um, and so tomorrow, when we go over the Passover, it'll be super great to touch upon um, just how Catholic and Eucharistic the Passover meal is. Uh, it, it's very much the Passover meal and not so much the Passover sacrifice. And that's very important to note because you have to eat the lamb. There's more said in the, in the entire... Uh, chapter 12 of Exodus um, about the consumption of the lamb than there is rather of the sacrifice of the lamb, which is all, all very interesting. 
in any case, Job uh, 30, we, we did go over it yesterday, just to reiterate. So 29 was this, this affirmation that he is a good man, that he has uh, followed Christ, or rather he's followed God's, his commandments. He's upright, offers sacrifices on behalf of his kids. He's a well-meaning man. He's just, he's righteous versus now the state that he's in where he's suffering. He feels like he's lost it all. Um, and so all this is just a summation of where he's at now. And so that's chapter 30. But we'll see as we continue to read. Um, give me one second here. We're going to see other sort of soliloquies from Job in which 31, um, he, he's using legal language of courtroom and he uttered a lengthy oath swearing his innocence of even the most subtle sins. And so he's continuing. And you're going to see this, this continuous. And these are Job's final speeches. And then again, uh, starting in chapter 32, we're going to get into this enigmatic figure of Elihu. And he's going to have his speeches on the mysteries of God. And then finally, God breaks his divine silence and speaks on everything that's been going on. Um, and so, uh, moving on, we're on Mark chapter 2. But I did want to go over a couple of things that I, I felt were, were important that I missed from yesterday um, from Mark chapter 1. So one thing, I, I mentioned it a bit, was um, verse 15, Mark chapter 1. It says, this is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we got to put on our first century Jewish lenses and think, what would a Jew believe what would you understand when they heard jesus say this because he said it with a purpose he had something important to say so what exactly was it essentially he's alluding to a prophecy from the book of daniel chapter 2 which is the coming of the kingdom of god and so daniel outlines these four pagan kingdoms that are going to come before the tiny little pebble that is the kingdom of god will come and so he he pictures this giant statue all made of different materials and essentially the last one um is made of i believe it's like iron that the ten toes made of like iron and clay and that represents sort of just the, the roman empire and so this little pebble which is to grow and become a big mountain is jesus it is the kingdom of god coming and so daniel put a timeline to it so you have Isaiah, you have the other prophets, but Daniel gave us this timeline that, hey, the kingdom of God is going to happen. It's going to come to fruition during the Roman Empire. And so that's something that's very important. And the Jews, when they see this, when they, this is the time of fulfillment, the kingdom of God is at hand. They would have heard that. They would have understood and remembered Daniel 2 and that prophecy and understood, okay, this is the expectation that we've been having of the Messiah. The kingdom of God is at hand. He is here. This is important. And so um, that's just one thing. Another thing which I recently learned, which I thought was really cool, was we have the, we have the story of Jesus curing the demonic in Capernaum. Um, and so he does that. He drives out the unclean spirit, all that stuff. And something that uh, puzzled me a bit on verse 27. This is still chapter 1 of Mark. It says, all were amazed and asked one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, they obey him. Well, on the surface, we can kind of see um, Jesus has power over unclean spirits. But if you look into it, um, 
and you understand the the Jewish roots rather the the historicity of it there was this expectation that the messiah would have full power over um uh unclean spirits and you can think back to genesis chapter 3 verse 15 there's an enmity between the woman and the serpent her seed and his seed and so the jewish tradition had an expectation of the, the coming of the messiah in which he would you know crush the head of the serpent it would strike at his heel and so you see this coming to fruition here in mark and mark's going at it like super fast paced in his gospel where this is the anonymity that was prophesied way back when they understand this to be the messiah and so here he is at odds with this with the demons essentially but one thing that's really cool that was pointed out to me was that um the jews at the time they only had one central place of worship, which was the temple in Jerusalem. That was the only place that would offer sacrifice. However, in the synagogues, you basically just had laymen going inside and preaching about the scriptures. Of course, there were some scribes and Pharisees who would who would go and teach as well because they were they were more educated. But it was not uncommon for lay people to go into synagogues and preach. So that's how you can hear of the apostles going into the synagogues, Jesus going into the synagogues. That always puzzled me. I never understood how are these guys just going to go into, you know, these churches and just start preaching? That's kind of, you know, it's kind of weird. But it makes sense if you understand the Jewish context. The Jewish context being that it was open to the lay people in such a fashion to go into the synagogues and preach. And so on this specific occasion, Jesus, who is this Messiah, right? He goes in the synagogue to preach. He casts out a demon. And what's so cool is that while he's preaching, just picture this. Picture you're going to Sunday Mass. Father's giving a great homily. He's going off. You're listening to him. He's like, whoa, this guy, you know, he's teaching good stuff. Midway through all of that, there's a literal exorcism happening in the church. And that's exactly what was going on here in this passage. Jesus was preaching. And so he preached with such authority that he was commanding the evil spirits. And so there was literal exorcisms just happening in the synagogue right there. So that's really, really awesome to think about and that those are the only two things i wanted to to go over from mark chapter one um um katie added added in the chat that the rock slash the pebble that falls on the roman empire um it grows into a big mountain and so you can think of uh you know the the center rather of the catholic church where the bishop of rome resides is in rome and he's on vatican hill which has grown from a band of 11 people to this giant mountain, which is the universal church that spans throughout the entire world, every continent, every tongue, you name it, there's Catholics. And so, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely go over this when we get to Daniel 2. It's really interesting, but just uh, a little tidbit of information there that Katie pointed out, which is cool. So now, moving on to Mark chapter 2. The healing of the paralytic. Full disclosure, once we continue throughout the synoptics, we'll see a lot of the stories are being repeated. Um, so more often than not, I'm just going to regurgitate information that you may have heard before. Uh, but that's essentially what's done with the Gospels. Of course, they have different details and um, the writing styles are different. And so they bring different flavors to them um, and different understandings, essentially. But continuing on this is the healing of the paralytic man this is mark chapter 2 when jesus returned to capernaum after some days it became known that he was at home many gathered together so that there was no longer room for them not even around the door and he preached the word to them they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men 
Unable to get near Jesus because of the crowd, they opened up the roof above him, and after they had broken through, they let down the mat on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there asking themselves, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who but God alone can forgive sins? Jesus immediately knew in his mind what they were thinking to themselves. So he said, Why are you thinking such things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, pick up your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. He rose, picked up his mat at once, and went away in the sight of everyone. They were all astounded and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So, uh, we've been over this passage, which is the passage of the paralytic man. So, essentially... Uh, Jesus forgives him his sins, and then he heals him. And what's important to note here, and it's made more explicit in Matthew's gospel, is that it is the faith of his friends that brings about this healing. Um, it says they saw their faith, and that's sort of androgynous here, and it could mean, you know, either like the, all of their faith, like all five of the men, or just the faith of his friends who brought him in. It doesn't really spe- specify. However, uh, Matthew is more explicit about it, that it's the faith of, this, of his friends that caused this um, healing. Now, one other part that's really interesting to note, and I, I think it'll be um, really insightful. It says, you know, this guy's blaspheming who alone could God, but God can forgive sins. And so Jesus, of course, keeping the messianic secret, um, he says, but you, that, he says, your sins are forgiven, which is easier, your sins are forgiven, or say to them, rise, pick up your mat, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. So let's pause for a second. Son of man. We understand that Jesus to be referring to himself. However, if you look, I think it's also in the book of Daniel. Um, son of man is a reference to the Messiah, who is in fact this divine Messiah. And so the Jewish people who are ignorant of the scriptures will not see that, hey, I'm affirming that I'm God. And at the same time, those who aren't ignorant will see that he is affirming that he is God. So he's keeping that messianic secret. He's not denying his divinity in any way, shape, or form. He's affirming it in a very Jewish and subtle way. But also, Son of Man, it, it, it's, it's something that has been referred to sort of as you know the, the, the humanity of Christ. And that, that's a beautiful thing to think about when you can tie this to John 20, 23. So Jesus didn't say only God can forgive sins, but he says the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. And so he is the Son of Man. He is truly God. He is truly man. And he has the full authority and power because he's God, but he is still human. And so that's interesting. And when you tie that to John 20, 23, when he says, uh, he breathes on the apostle, says, um, as my father sent me, I now send you. Whatever sins you forgiven are forgiven. Whatever sins you retain are retained. He's now bestowing the authority to forgive sins to these other sons of men. So he's not denying that men could forgive sins. And of course, it's all by the power of Christ. But this is just something that's really interesting to note is that Jesus truly is a son of man. He's truly human, but he's also truly divine. And so he has this authority to forgive sins on earth. And he passes that authority, that power through the Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind. It's the apostles that, it's the priests that they do the prayer of absolution. Yes, you're fully forgiven. It's them doing free will. They're having their free will. They're going about it. They're doing their ministry. But it's ultimately 
by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Of course, you got to tie it all back with the free will and God's grace. Because he says explicitly, he breathed the Holy Spirit upon them, said, receive you the Holy Spirit. And this is in John 20, 23. And so these men have the power, the authority, rather, to forgive sins on earth. The power is God's. The power is that of the Holy Spirit. And so that's something that's really interesting to note. And so continuing on verse 13, the call of Levi, which is Matthew. Once again, he went out along the sea. All the crowd came to him and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the customs post. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners sat with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Some scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors and said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard this and said to them that those who are well do not need a physician, but the sick do. I do not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So essentially, um, to give you a little Jewish backdrop, a tax collector was somebody that was constantly working with the pagans. They were constantly working with the Gentiles. And so the Jews had this sort of system of spirit or um, ritual cleanliness. And so if you soiled your hands, so to speak, with a dead body, with um, a Gentile, with any sort of sin, you would be ritually unclean. In the same token, if you were to sin, then you would then be... Um, and we'll get into this more when we continue studying Exodus and Leviticus. But you'll you'll lose your your sort of holiness. So uh, there's this diagram where it's like you're you're holy and clean, and then you're holy and unclean, and then you're unholy and unclean. And the sacrifice of the bulls and goats they they purify you, and then they can sanctify you. And this is in the old covenant. Um, but this idea is still present. You know, Mark assumes that you guys are Jews and understand this. And so the tax collectors are, in a sense, living in a state of mortal sin. And so that, that's, that's the issue here. And Jesus, this man who's been teaching, been casting out demons, he's eating and sitting with them when the scribes and Pharisees would entirely ignore them. They would not be allowed to touch them because they, they would be unclean, unable to enter the synagogues and the temple. And so... This calls back also to, to Peter. You know, he was preaching correctly, and Paul had to rebuke him because he did not want to sit and eat with the Gentiles. He was sort of treating them differently. And so Paul calls him out on that. He's like, hey, you're not practicing what you preach, dude. That's a problem. And so in, in a similar sense, Jesus is here. He's fulfilling this. He's eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And why does he do it? Because he understands and he affirms the last line here says, those who are well do not need a doctor, but the sick do. And I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And so um, the difference between, you know, the righteous and the sinners, think of the 99 and leaving the 99 for the one. That's essentially the same idea here is that he's here in search of the one. He's here in search of those who have fallen away because, you know, the apostles you know, they're, they're good, right? They're, they're following Christ. They're living uh, their lives for Christ. They're not the ones that Christ is sort of going to help. He's coming to save sinners. But the apostles, they do need saving, of course. They, they still have that element of the sinful nature where they still sin, of course, and they're human and all of that. But the, the explicit context here is just that, that he's here to help these people. Um, and the, these people are the ones who need uh, 
the, the doctor. So anyways, continuing on verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were accustomed to fast. People came to him and objected, why do disciples of John and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Jesus answered them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old cloth. If he does, it falls, its, its fullness pulls away, the new from the old, and the tear gets worse. Likewise, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the skins are ruined. Rather, new wine is poured into fresh wineskins. So, what is Jesus alluding to here? What is he teaching? Why does he call himself the bridegroom? Essentially, we've been over this, you know, the bride of Christ is the church. And so, um, Jesus is this divine bridegroom. And so, he's, re he's referring to himself as the bridegroom because earlier in John's gospel, I believe, it's asking, like, are you the one that's coming? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? And he says, no, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. And so you have this idea that goes all the way back to the Old Testament that on Mount Sinai, um, God the Father weds himself to the Israelites in this beautiful wedding feast, right? And so you have this illusion, again, this wedding feast, the weddings, um, the bridegroom there present with his disciples, and they have this covenantal bond. And in a similar sense, this divine bridegroom has now come in the flesh. And so people are waiting and they understand that the Messiah is this divine bridegroom through the prophecies. And so they have this expectation of this Messiah, the expectation of this divine bridegroom. And so in John's gospel, when he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, it's kind of uh, enigmatic because it's like, well, Jesus is a celibate Jew. He doesn't have a wife. What, is, what are you talking about? And so Jesus is alluding here to his identity as the bridegroom. Um, and so that's just one thing. And then the last part here is very interesting. Uh, uh, verse 23, it says, As he was passing through the field of grain on the Sabbath, his disciples began to make a path while picking the heads of grain. At this, the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did? And when, when he was in need, and he and his companions were hungry, how he went into the house of God, when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of offering that only the priest could lawfully eat and shared it with his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is why the son of man is Lord even on the Sabbath. So there's a whole bunch here. So to unpack it first, see the disciples are, are picking grain, you know, they're, they're breaking the Sabbath. And so what does Jesus say? Well, first he alludes to David. Did you not hear what David did? What is he referencing? So at one point, David um, and his companions, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they were on the run. And so they entered into the temple and they found the, the bread of offering. More accurately, it's known as the bread of the presence or the bread of the face. Jewish tradition attests to this being the bread of the face of God. And so one beautiful uh, tradition that's still upheld in the church today is that every year they would take out the temple table. They would take it out of the tabernacle with the bread cakes on top of them. And they would hold up a piece of this bread cake and they would say, behold God's love for you. This is God's love for you, right? And so they were showing the Jewish people 
and they understood through their traditions that this was the face of God. And so similarly, when we're at, when we're at Mass and we hear, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world, that section right there is a fulfillment of that Jewish celebration in which we're being shown essentially what the priest is saying is, Behold God's love for you. Here it is. It's under the form of bread and wine for, to sustain you spiritually. And so what is he alluding to ultimately here? That, that's just a little off-topic thing there, but that's what the bread of the presence is. It had a very important thing, and as mentioned here, only the high priest could eat it. Well, first, Jesus is showing that David was a true king, but a true high priest, or a true priest as well. But he's also showing that he is even greater than David. He is the new David, because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And, this is, and then he says, this is why the Son of Man, referring to himself, is Lord even on the Sabbath. So he can't break the Sabbath. He's God. And so that, that's what he's showing here, is that, you know, David, who was true king, and, and he was true priest, it was, in a sense, unlawful, but truly it's, it was lawful for him to eat. Yet he is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the new David. He is the fulfillment of David. And so he is son of man who is Lord even on the Sabbath. Um, and this, this goes into the teaching of the church and why we don't celebrate the Saturday Sabbath anymore. Essentially because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So um, the, by way of, the way we keep the Sabbath, rather, is to um, attend Mass on Sundays, essentially. Because the Lord's Day, the day of his resurrection, um, many of the, the saints have attested to. Uh, they've said that, I believe it was St. Irenaeus, no, or St. Ignatius, who said that no longer observing the Sabbath, we adhere to the Lord's Day. And we, we gather break bread on, Sunday, on the Lord's Day. Um, it's very similar, and I think there's an explicit, an explicit reference to how circumcision was replaced by baptism. Well, the, Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath was replaced by the Lord's Day, um, ultimately entailing that this Saturday day for rest, you know, God rested on the seventh day, all that. He prescribed the Sabbath, right, for the Israelites through the, through the covenant with Moses. Um, all that is very important because you have to have a day, you know, set apart for the Lord. In honoring the Lord, and that Sabbath was very important. However, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And so it should not just be one day that we set apart, but our whole lives should be consecrated. Our whole lives should be set apart for Christ. Our whole lives should be dedicated to Christ because he is the Lord of the Sabbath, because he's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And so when we gather and worship on Sunday, if all you're doing is the bare minimum of just going to the Mass on Sunday, and you're not really keeping the Sabbath in a sense by honoring Christ, by living your, your vocation as you're called to every other day, you're not honoring the Sabbath because Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. So keep, keeping that in mind, essentially, if you want to be a saint, Think of the greatest saint. And so I'm going to share this. 
was recently told to me by my father, and I think it's an, an amazing thing. The greatest saint, people think of Mary, okay? Think of the greatest male saint. Um, that would be St. Joseph. St. Joseph, you don't hear any stories about any miraculous things he did. You don't hear any stories about any lepers he cleansed, people he raised from the dead, none of that, because that's sort of just absent from the Bible. However, he's a saint, and in fact, he's second only to Mary. And so keeping that in mind, how did he fulfill his vocation? He was a good father. He was a protector. He was a defender, a guardian to Mary and to Jesus. Essentially, the easiest way to become a saint is to live out the vocation Christ calls you to live out. Living out that vocation, doing what Christ has called you to do, that's how you become a saint. And that's exactly what St. Joseph did. He didn't do anything crazy. I mean, he was the foster father of Jesus, right? The foster father of God here on earth. That's an amazing thing. He was blessed to have that, of course. But primarily, he was a defender. He was a provider, protector of the family. He was living the life he was supposed to live. Living the life God has called him to live. And that's how you become a saint. Um, anyways, uh, is there any questions about anything that we've read? Um, if not, we could end it in prayer and then we'll be good.